Bienvenue and welcome back to the Land of Desire. I'm your host, Diana, and here's a little quiz to see whether any of you have spent the last, oh my god, year of the pandemic with the same hobby I have. Can you guess what this list has in common? Vichy, La Roche-Posée, Oriage, Aven, Caudalie. I can already feel a lot of you nodding along because you've already guessed the answer. Yeah, I wear sweatpants all day every day, and I haven't worn makeup since March 2020, but my skin, my skincare is glamorous, darlings. I am absolutely babying my face. I just listed off a bunch of the most well-respected and widely distributed skincare brands in France. But that's not all. If you're very clever, you may also notice that all of the names I listed have something else in common. Every single one of those brands traces its origin back to a natural water source. Whether it's a world-famous spa town frequented by royalty, or a very picturesque babbling brook on some mythical spot of farmland, all of these brands boast about their very special eau thermale, all of which are supposed to have very special and distinct healing properties. A few nights ago, while I was halfway through my night routine, I found myself wondering about those spa towns. The French really do go crazy for hot springs. I personally associate hot springs and natural spas with, like, a bunch of outdoor hot tubs, and maybe a weekend getaway with the girls. For thousands of years, natural springs have provided the French with relief from major and minor physical ailments, tons of society gossip, a respite from the bustle of city life, and maybe, just maybe, a miracle or two. So this week, Maybe it's time to fill up the tub and enjoy this episode during a nice, warm soak in some hot water, because we are taking a trip through the history of the spa. Take a stroll down the Boulevard Saint-Germain today, and you'll pass any number of high-end pharmacies and drugstores advertising a dazzling assortment of creams, lotions, and potions to cure what ails you, whether it's eczema, acne, indigestion, athlete's foot, or simply the inexorable march of time. Starting at Les Dieux Mégots, you could walk past the Pharmacie de Saint-Germain-de-Prés, the Pharmacie Butet, Pharmacy Saint-Sulpice, and the Pharmacy Odeon within the space of a few blocks. Then, of course, there's the City Pharmacy, which is a legendary pharmacy that looks like a half-off sale at Saks any day of the year. It's insane. But continue on a few more feet, and you'll encounter a different sort of dispensary altogether, the most ancient source of medicine in the city of Paris. Here, on the corner of the Boulevard Saint-Germain and the Boulevard Saint-Michel, is the famous Musée de Cluny, home of the city's ancient Roman baths. Built approximately 2,200 years ago, the baths were enormous in their day, stretching over 6,000 square meters of valuable real estate. Back then, the ancient Roman outpost called Lutetia required constant guarding, 
and this part of town held a host of administrative buildings and military outposts. In ancient Rome, wherever troops traveled, public baths followed, for rather obvious reasons. While rich Romans might build private baths in their homes, the general public was welcome and encouraged to take part in a public dip, where they could scrub themselves clean, exchange gossip, maybe broker a few deals, and even get a little workout in. Men and women both enjoyed use of the public baths, and free admission meant there was a genuine cross-section of society present in the pools. The ruins at Cluny are pretty typical Roman bath architecture. The complex was divided into three sections, in which water was available at different temperatures. First, you'd enjoy the piping hot water straight out of the ground and the caldaria, sweating out your impurities. Then, you'd move into the tepidarium, where the naturally hot water had been allowed to cool off a bit. Here, you might get a massage with some essential oils. Finally, you'd step into the frigidarium, which is exactly what you think, a nippy environment to close the pores and finish off your day before going into the locker rooms to pick up your clothes. Even today, visitors to Cluny can see the sophisticated pipes which carried water around to the different chambers and step inside the enormous frigidarium, which remains in pretty great condition for a 2,000-year-old YMCA. The golden age of the Cluny bathhouse lasted for about 200 years, after which point a roving band of barbarians sacked the baths along with the rest of the city. After that, bathhouses which survived invading hordes acquired a seedier reputation, and most of them fell into disuse or disrepute for the next thousand years. Those next thousand years are extremely dirty and smelly, so let's time travel all the way up to the year 1571. All over Europe, philosophers, scientists, artists, and politicians were rediscovering ancient Greece and Rome, experiencing a rebirth, a renaissance, if you will, eh, eh, of classical culture and thought. Early scientists had developed a bunch of very early lab equipment, and they were always excited when they came up with new ideas about how to use it. At some point early on in the Renaissance, someone thought it might be a good idea to figure out just what exactly was in natural spring water. After all, some natural waters smell like rotten eggs. Some of them made you feel sick when you drank it, and some of it had a special color. So for the next 200 years, whenever anyone with a 16th century beaker had an afternoon to kill, he'd trudge up the hill to the nearest natural spring, distill the water, and try to figure out what the sediment was made out of. After about 200 years of this tinkering, a man named Andrea Bacci decided somebody needed to write the book on natural springs, and look, he was just such a man. His work, De Thermis, was a culmination of nearly 200 years of European men trudging up the hills with a canteen, and it was a pretty monumental work. For 497 folio pages, Bacci's encyclopedic work declared that no man could consider himself classically trained in medicine without understanding the healing properties of natural waters. 
if no less than the ancient Romans were out there building baths everywhere they went, surely there was something of merit in the idea. All of a sudden, that weird little steaming watering hole up in that obscure little village was more than a local curiosity or a laundry site. Suddenly, it was a direct link to a glorious past, and perhaps a key to optimal health. As he wrote in a sequel later in his career, Bachu said these waters were known to the ancients, but overlooked for hundreds of years, and had now been brought back to light for the good of all. Bachi's book wasn't just a press release for the magic of thermal baths. It was also a rallying cry. For 1,000 years, the baths had gurgled along right under their noses. Oh, it wasn't that people had forgotten about the baths. Sitting in a hot tub on a cold night is a pretty instinctive endeavor, and the locals certainly enjoyed their local watering holes. But the people weren't taking the baths seriously enough. These were very serious matters, and they ought to be overseen by very serious doctors, not just the rough-and-tumble public. So with that in mind, Bachi laid out a long discourse about the incredibly complex world of water therapy. He also produced a guide to the most reputable baths in Europe. Here's where the problem comes in. France, according to Andrea Bacci, lacked any hot springs worth a detour. In the 16th century, the discerning hydrotherapy enthusiast would recommend hot springs in Italy, Greece, Germany, and one particularly famous Belgian hot spring in the town of Spa. But France? Why? All the once great Roman baths had crumbled into disrepute, and what was left was of questionable medical potency. All throughout the 1600s, the royal families of Europe traveled to the natural springs of their nation and returned home with tales of wonder cures, and their pleasing odors alone must have seemed proof that miracles really do happen. Yet in France, with no respectable bathhouses to speak of, the French court sat around, stewing, sweating, turning their noses up either out of snobbery or desperation to escape the smell of their neighbors. Then, in 1580, an old familiar tune began playing at court. The king and queen of France had yet to produce an heir. What France may have lacked in deluxe spas, she made up for with her number of quack doctors. And those quack royal doctors immediately packed up King Henri Trois and his wife and dispatched them to the natural springs at Bourbon-Lancy. It was the first great spa day of the French nation. Kind of. The thing is, in 1580, Bourbon-Lancy was a noble ancient pile of rubble. The waters were definitely hot, but none of the water nerds of the previous century had ever bothered to study what was in the water or what curative properties it might hold. Why go to Bourbon-Lancy? Is a guess, really. But good news for Henri Trois. He was the king, and if he and his lady wanted a luxury spa trip, by God, they were going to get one. 
Henri's crew sent no fewer than a hundred and fifty men ahead of them to transform the big pile of ancient rubble into a resort more appropriate for a king. They cleared the rubble, restored the flow of thermal water to a more robust current, and even built a lodge for guests to stay. Good thing, too, since the king and queen arrived with a bunch of sick courtiers in tow. Unfortunately, the queen did not get pregnant on the trip. On the other hand, one of her courtiers, the Comtesse de Fiesque, did get pregnant on the trip. The Comtesse de Fiesque was 54 years old at the time, so maybe there was something in the water after all. The first French royal visit to a thermal bath kicked off a national frenzy to discover the waters, promote the waters, and then take the waters. Any waters. It was a boom time for French doctors, all of whom insisted that their little spring would cure warts and soothe athlete's foot. By 1600, every puddle in France seemed to have at least one curative property and one local champion. Like cupcake shops in New York City in 2005, most of these were doomed to fail after the craze had passed, but those which had been lucky enough to secure the patronage of royals and the rich secured themselves a lasting legacy. Bourbon-Larchambault was the favored spa of Madame de Montespan, the mistress of King Louis XIV, which meant Bourbon-Larchambault was the favored spa of every other fawning courtier at Versailles. Others, in search of specific relief for specific maladies, might read through a 17th-century guidebook to find an appropriate treatment center. Those with bad nerves or infertility took the waters at Forge, while those with the shakes went to Vichy. The eminent Madame de Sévigné believed so strongly in the curative powers of Vichy waters that she made the difficult journey multiple times, well into her old age, to treat the arthritis which left her unable to hold a pen, a fate worse than death to the famous writer. No matter which site they chose, the rich and ailing were in for quite a ride. One can only imagine the field trip from hell, with all of Versailles struggling with their best resort wear, only to spend two weeks on muddy roads trudging through terrible weather in the middle of nowhere. As Madame de Sévigné recalled about one of her journeys, we walked from daybreak until nightfall without stopping, just two hours for dinner, a continual rain, devilish paths, always on foot, for fear of falling into terrible ruts. Once they arrived, it wasn't exactly rainbows and kittens. While things had improved since King Henri III, most of the spa towns were just that, towns. Compared to the gilded splendor of Versailles, it was hardly luxurious to spend three weeks in a town of 2,000 peasants renting a room from a pig farmer. The spa facilities weren't much better. Even the famous bourbon Lachambeau, favorite of the king's mistress, was little more than a mud pit in the ground. Whatever the spa towns may have become later, 17th-century spa-going was about two things and two things only, sticking close to the king and finding something, anything, to fix what ailed you, even if the medicine was a hell of a pill to swallow.
If Andrea Bacci was worried about one thing, it was people having too much fun at the spa. As Europe entered the Enlightenment, a good soak became a dose of hydrotherapy, and taking the waters suddenly meant a rigidly monitored 18-part regimen. No matter where you went, everyone's spa trip began the same way, bleeding and purging. Yum. As soon as you'd thoroughly emptied out your body, it was time to refill it at the closest drinking fountain, where you'd drink as much magical thermal water as you possibly could. You'd drink and walk around the room and then refill your glass and drink and walk around the room, making polite conversation with your other hydro homies until nature called, at which point you'd duck discreetly into a back alley to... Well, I'll let Madame de Sévigny explain it. At six o'clock we go to the fountain. Everyone is there, and we drink while making a face. The water is boiling hot and tastes unpleasantly of saltpeter. We turn, we go, we come, we walk, we hear mass, we make water in the alley. We talk discreetly about how our water-making went. Fun! If you were there for a specific ailment, you'd proceed to all manner of hydrotherapies, most of which are pretty familiar to spa-goers today. Sitting in a hot tub, sitting in a steam room, getting swaddled in blankets, and set out in a dry sauna, maybe even a mud pack. Every day you'd repeat the process, or some variation, for at least two weeks, after which you'd be waddled out resembling a California raisin. At every step of your journey, you would be supervised by a medically qualified intendant who reported to the king's own physician. Working alongside the intendant was the beigneur, a.k.a. the fun police, who made sure everybody wore their modesty gowns, intervened whenever he saw horseplay, and kicked out any riffraff. When you weren't soaking, steaming, or sweating— You were eating a light, boring lunch and enjoying quiet card games and conversation before having another light, boring dinner and going to bed by 10 p.m. If you're struggling to imagine the court of Versailles going to bed by 10 p.m., I don't blame you. But on the other hand, perhaps for the perpetually hungover and gouty courtier, it might have been a nice break. Whatever else may have happened, you emerged after two weeks feeling well-rested, well-moisturized, with some fresh country air in your lungs. No wonder everyone sang the praises of the spa doctors upon their return to the big city. And praise was not all they brought back. By the end of the 17th century, the nobles began bringing back the water itself, a prelude to the distribution networks to come, and the new wave of spa mania which would sweep the nation. If the cheerleaders of the 17th century spa towns were doctors, the 18th century cheerleaders were hotel owners. With every body of hot water in France getting marketed to the rich, each enterprising up-and-coming spa had to set itself apart. Instead of writing about the specific curative properties of their water— Hotel owners, town mayors, other enterprising locals would describe the charming sentiments of their village. But many of the most prestigious guests of the 1700s were, 
underwhelmed with what they found at the end of the long, exhausting journey. In 1761, the daughters of the king visited Vichy and came back complaining that the famous waters were muddy, inaccessible pits. In 1787, their nephew, King Louis XVI, constructed a series of more luxurious bathhouses, but he probably didn't have time to visit them himself. For spa towns and spa-goers alike in late 1700s France, it was survival of the fittest. Even one of the directors of the Vichy facilities was executed in the terror of the French Revolution. After the chaos of the Revolution and the beheading of their most loyal customers, hundreds of smaller spa facilities closed their doors. Fittingly enough, Any spas lucky enough to survive the French Revolution were probably renovated by Napoleon, who found time in between planning invasions to order the expansion and improvement of French spa resorts. Always a fan of efficiency, Napoleon, like the ancient Romans, found French spas an excellent way to keep his enormous armies clean and free of disease. No doubt the Beigneux gave up on any attempt to keep things refined and genteel. But soon, soldiers were not the only ones experiencing the wonders of hot rock water for the first time. If the cheerleaders of the 17th century spas were doctors, and the 18th century cheerleaders were hotel owners, the 19th century cheerleaders were travel bloggers. It was the golden age of travel writing, in which fiction writers like Alexandre Dumas would use a flimsy plot as an excuse to describe in tantalizing detail all the interesting places of the world. Other non-fiction writers might embark on a grand tour and return to write their memoirs, or guidebooks, to sell to hungry and perhaps thirsty audiences. Thermal spa towns were no longer just for the elderly and infirm. They were a destination for adventurous travelers in need of a little pampering. The tour guides of the age shaped the popular idea of the spa town as either a rural oasis set in a bucolic landscape or a glamorous getaway for the in-crowd. In other words, what had once been the Mayo Clinic was now apparently either Monte Carlo or a glamping yurt. The travel guides and stories spent much less time talking about peeing in the alleyway or curing eczema, and much more time bragging about the golf courses and the beautiful rowboats. Where Madame de Sévigné may have taken a brisk after-dinner stroll, now French men and women found themselves playing a hearty game of tennis. Or so the brochures said. Reality took a long time to catch up with PR. The spa towns needed visitors first, so they'd have time to build all those luxury properties second. Even after centuries of elite spa tourism, Vichy still didn't offer a hotel suitable enough for a high-status visitor. The hotel owners of the 1700s had made sure that there were plenty of reasonable rooms for the undiscerning visitor willing to bunk up above the local tavern, but there was nowhere truly deluxe for the genteel European classes to stay. 
1836, the writer Auguste Luchet had written that Vichy was one of the two best summer quarters of Parisians, full of elegant villas amidst a picturesque countryside. But nearly thirty years after he wrote that, in 1861, Emperor Napoleon III traveled to Vichy in search of a cure for his ailing liver, and his retinue was horrified at the state of the hotels and amenities. Whatever the other travel writers might have said, this was not a town fit for an emperor. The spa towns were too important to be regulated by mere doctors. They were a civic affair, and soon spas weren't overseen by royal physicians, but by what was essentially the Chamber of Commerce. After Emperor Napoleon's disappointing and embarrassing visit, for example, the leaders of Vichy gathered together to formulate a plan. Vichy must upgrade, and soon. Napoleon III helped foot the bill, considering the spa a public utility, and within five years the summer population of Vichy had grown by 25%. In every major spa town, civic leaders raised funds for widespread advertising. In the Belle Epoque, customers weren't just found in Versailles. They could be found as far away as Manhattan. Spa towns created tourism offices to do a full-court PR press, putting out flyers, newsletters, newspapers, newspaper ads, and then, eventually, radio spots. The advertisements were hardly touting images of sickly grandmothers with arthritis able to walk again. Instead, advertisements depicted beautiful young women in thin white gowns about to dip into a pool of steaming water. She's young and healthy and, well, she's damp. In classic 19th-century Orientalist nonsense, the new luxury hotels often tried to evoke the exotic fever dream of the Turkish bath. Curved arches, minaret towers, painted tiles, and the promise of beautiful women hidden somewhere off-screen. And the ploy worked. Investments rolled in, luxury hotels went up, and before long, French spa towns offered a world of alluring, expensive entertainment. By the 1890s, French guests could stay in brand new hotels and spend their time in between treatments playing at the in-house casino or watching a performance at the town theater. New railroad tracks made it easier and faster than ever to reach even the most remote hot springs, and spa towns began to feel less like a nursing home and more like a resort. All across Europe, the rudimentary spas became big spas, the big spas became grand spas, and the grand spas became international hot spots drawing artists, socialites, world leaders, and more together for food, fun, and, oh yeah, some hot rock water. The frigid monastic retreats of the 1600s were now the playgrounds for the idle, wealthy, and scandalous. What happened in Vichy stayed in Vichy. Before long, society even had a name for the phenomenon afflicting those gathered at spa towns or beach resorts. 
seaside morals. Sometimes the flirtation worked out. Women began bringing their eligible daughters to the fashionable resorts in hopes that the steamy environments would help their daughters secure a wealthy husband. If men weren't willing to make such a lifelong commitment, spa towns also crowded with a new type of visitor, sex workers and courtesans. Madame de Sévigné and Andrea Bacci would have been shocked. But in the years leading up to World War I, the bright young things of Europe couldn't get enough. When Napoleon first began upgrading the nation's facilities, fewer than 10,000 people visited a French spa each year to spend two weeks bored out of their minds. By the end of that same century, nearly one million people trekked out to the oases of entertainment for thrills, theater, and maybe, if time allowed for it, a little water therapy. By the dawn of the 20th century, French spa resorts were the geese that laid golden eggs. They simply could not fail to turn a profit year after year, decade after decade. By 1900, French spas employed half a million people, generated 300 million francs of revenue, and entertained anyone who was anyone. Long gone were the days when a dozen exhausted courtiers would spend a quiet week or two in a mud hut. With the completion of the railroads making travel easier than ever, an unprecedented type of tourist arrived, the middle class. The entire middle class, it may have seemed, because from 1900 to 1930, the number of annual visitors to Vichy alone doubled. Conditions only grew more crowded by the end of the 1920s. French military officials were granted six-month sabbaticals after ten years of service, so the thousands of men who had enlisted during World War I and stuck around afterwards all began qualifying for a little R&R at the same time. Another social earthquake arrived in 1936 with the introduction of paid vacation. If you listen to episode 26, Hitler in Paris, you'll remember that state-subsidized vacations were all the rage in Europe in the 1930s and 40s. The French government arranged for standardized hotel prices, rail packages, and chartered group tours. Within the year, tens of thousands of French workers used their new benefits to visit a thermal spa. Business was booming. But the party was almost over. France's grand spas had committed the unforgivable offense. They'd let poor people in. The same railroads which ferried the middle classes to the spas were now ferrying the upper classes away towards new hot spots like Saint-Tropez and Biarritz. As discussed in episode 31, Le Train Bleu offered the rich and idle a pampered pathway to the Côte d'Azur. But more importantly, it offered exclusivity. No need to worry about running into a colonial officer or a soldier in the spa, or, God forbid, an office worker. No, no. The hotels at Cannes were grand, glitzy, 
and extremely inaccessible. But that wasn't the only contributing factor to the decline of the Grand European Spas. If French resorts were entering a new age, so was French medicine. As we learned last month, Louis Pasteur had just revolutionized the way that French people thought about hygiene. So many of the mysterious ailments which had sent desperate travelers to thermal waters for 300 years could now be treated with effective techniques by any respectable physician across the country. Pasteur himself was actually a fan of water therapy, so long as it was performed the old-fashioned way, that is to say, under the watchful eye of a trained doctor. For 100 years, water therapy had been undergoing this process of demedicalization. Suddenly, the process reversed itself. French patients seeking serious relief skipped out on the luxury hotels, and they headed to new, scientifically-minded medical spas. By the end of the 1930s, fewer than one in five spa visitors were actually there to seek treatment for an ailment. So if the management had been a little savvier, they might have recognized this as an existential threat. Entertainment and glamour are passing whimsies. They're doomed to instability. But suffering? Ah, suffering is forever. As long as thermal spas catered to the unwell, there would always be a dependable trickle of customers making a pilgrimage every year. But the grand spas of the 1930s were now one big party, and that party was about to end. In 1940, France fell to the invading German army. As Nazis streamed into the French capital, the national government packed up and hit the road, and after a few weeks, the administration settled in none other than the spa town of Vichy. There were a few good reasons for this. Vichy was a quick, easy train ride away from Paris, but still far enough away that it was outside German territory. Vichy's status as a spa town meant there were thousands and thousands of hotel rooms available to house the officials and bureaucrats pouring off the getaway trains. As a luxury resort, Vichy also offered every modern technology that you might need to run a government. Phone lines, telegraph lines, central heating, and, needless to say, good plumbing. For locals, 1940 felt like an invasion of its own. The population of Vichy swelled from 30,000 to 130,000, with the original residents squeezed out by their own disgraced leadership. Locals would distinguish between the Vichysois, victims of the war like everyone else, and the Vichyists, who served the shameful administration during the next four years. After the German collapse in 1944, the Vichyists pulled up stake again, leaving Vichy behind, stripped bare, desolate, barely functional. The formerly glamorous spa town was now a byword for national shame, and the locals set about erasing any traces of the Vichy regime from their city streets and record-keeping. But the biggest threat to Vichy, and every other French spa town, actually came from within. In 1958, 
the French national health insurance system dramatically reduced its subsidies for medically prescribed thermal spa cures. In the modern world, patients sought relief from doctors, pills, creams, and surgeries, not hot rock water. The elites had moved on to the Côte d'Azur, the middle class were recovering from wartime devastation, and medical patients were now steered towards their local doctor's office. The savviest French spas knew they had to innovate if they were going to survive. And the solution, so to speak, was right in front of them the whole time. You'll remember that aristocratic ladies shipped bottled thermal water to their homes as early as the 17th century. By the early 20th century, during the golden age of spa tourism, bottled water took on a new life of its own. Part souvenir, part diffusion line, bottles of thermal water allowed you to bring home a memory of a great trip a visual signifier to your social circle that you'd taken the waters, or a cheap way to pretend that you'd taken the waters, even if you'd never left city limits. By the 1930s, even when spas were packed with throngs of tourists, bottled thermal water yielded as much profit as the tourists did. In the post-war economy, bottled water transformed from a side hustle to a lifeline. The French love their water in bottles. Between World War II and today, the French population grew 60%, but the French consumption of bottled water grew 2,350%. That is a long story unto itself involving complicated water law, and don't worry, I am not going to go into it. But what matters for today is... The spa towns pulled off this neat marketing trick. Think about it. For centuries, European thermal spas convinced their customers that you had to experience the water right at the source to even get any of those juicy benefits. You couldn't just pour it into your bath or your own kettle. It was crucial that you make the 24-day trip by horse-drawn carriage over bad roads to stay in a twin bed over a brewery for the privilege of drinking the hot rock water straight from the rocks. All of a sudden, those very same resorts declared the opposite. Turns out, you could totally get the benefits of thermal water, even if it had been poured into a plastic bottle and shipped 9,000 miles away. Today, France spends 4 billion euros on bottled water, and four out of the five most consumed brands come from former spa towns. Evian, Perrier, Badois, and Vitel. But the spa towns did not stop there. If thermal water could maintain its curative properties when bottled and consumed across distance and time, could it be incorporated into creams and lotions as well? Those wily businessmen of the Belle Epoque were, as usual, way ahead of the curve. As early as 1931, a perfumer and a physician co-founded a cosmetics company, which incorporated Vichy water into its skincare products. 
you still know this company as Vichy, and you can find it in any drugstore in America. An enterprising doctor in the 1950s infused moisturizer with the unique plankton found in his local thermal springs, and he founded Biotherm. La Roche-Posay, once a hydrotherapy facility for Napoleon's soldiers, now home to one of the world's most prestigious treatment centers for dermatologic diseases, launched a spin-off line of skincare products in 1975. These spin-off lines, like bottled water, turned out to be an enormous success. Anyone on skincare TikTok sees all of these brands recommended by teenagers and dermatologists alike, without having any knowledge of their origins in 19th century wellness retreats. But as with any skincare products, the big question is, of course, does it work? The short answer is, Jerry's still out. But the interesting answer is, maybe. As much as I joke about hot rock water, thermal spas may well offer significant benefits for a number of painful conditions, and rheumatologists, dermatologists, and others continue to refer thousands of patients to thermal spas every year. I wouldn't be surprised if actual thermal spas, like medical spas, provide significant health benefits. But just as with bottled water, what happens when that thermal water is, like, mixed into a moisturizer and shipped to me here in California? Most of the peer-reviewed publications out there about thermal water skincare products were funded by the thermal water companies, so take it with a sip of salty water. In the meantime, it's a gentle, fun step in a skincare routine. It's pretty harmless. So sales have been through the roof over the past year of quarantine. And that includes my house, where I have a can of Aven thermal water that I spray on my face in hopes that it'll get my rosacea to chill out. I have no idea if it works. But I do know this. Aven has the most ridiculous origin story of any skincare brand, and I must share it with you to close out today's episode. During my research, I expected to see a long, flowery story about ancient mineral springs in which ancient French kings healed from battle and ancient, beautiful French women never aged, and everyone lived to age 100 after drinking a glass. Instead, I found this, and I swear to you, I am quoting directly from their website. The therapeutic properties of Aven Thermal Spring were first discovered when a horse belonging to the Marquis de Rocozel, suffering from alopecia, rolled in the water regularly to soothe its itching skin. It's been told that the horse's coat was restored to its original shiny and healthy condition. Well, if it's good enough for the alopecia of a nobleman's horse, I guess it's good enough for my dumb old face. From ancient Roman baths, to royal infertility, to military convalescence, to elite nightlife, to mass market relaxation, all the way to fancy water bottles and under-eye cream, the humble hot rock waters of France have had quite the journey. So... Let's raise a glass of mineral water and give a toast to hydration. 
Thanks for listening to The Land of Desire. Make sure to sign up for the show's newsletter at thelandofdesire.substack.com. I'll be sending out this month's update on Friday, so there's still time. You can also follow the show on Twitter or Instagram, which is honestly the easiest way to say hi. I would like to send a thank you and an apology to anyone who has emailed me in... Oh God, I don't know. The last few months, maybe more. I don't know. I'm sorry. It has been a very, 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 very busy quarter between my job and this show and a lot of other personal things. Something had to give, and my personal inbox definitely ended up being that thing. So I apologize if I have not responded to your email, but I hope that you know I appreciate you writing it. Thank you to everyone who listened to today's episode. And until next time... Au revoir.